Well, hey, everybody. Um, good to see you all today. Uh, you all might remember that we have been in a series on First Sunday on worship. Um, does anybody recall what we've been calling this series on worship? If Bella clicks to the first slide here in just a second, you're going to be able to know it right like that. Um, we've been talking about spirit and in truth. And our theme verse here uh, for this series is John 4:23, where it says, But the hour is coming, this is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, this is the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And you might remember that on the first Sunday we talked about this, we discussed that these two criteria of spirit and truth uh, were pretty important to worship. The first one relates to regeneration. Anybody remember what regeneration means? Made alive in Christ. So when Jesus talks about being born again, that's what we're talking about, is regeneration. And so the language here is that we see in Ephesians, it says that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, and unless we are made alive, we will continue dead spiritually. But by God's grace, Christ makes us alive in Him. And so what we said is, if I am going to worship God as he is to be worshipped, then I need to be made alive. That means I need to be a regenerated believer. I need to repent of my sin, put my trust in Christ. I need to get saved. Otherwise, my worship is really just idolatry. And so then we also said that, well, if I am saved, I'm going to love Christ as he is, and I'm, I'm going to have my heart in it in worshipping. So not only is the spirit made alive to worship, but then if my spirit is alive, I'm, I'm going to love God and I'm going to really worship him as he is to be worshipped. The second thing we said, so okay, we're worshipping in spirit, but also worshipping in, in truth. And so that meant that like I can only worship God as he has revealed himself. I don't get to make up God in my own mind and say, well, this is what I think God should be like and I'm going to worship him like that. I don't get to worship some idol about God. I need to worship God in accordance with his revelation. And that means beyond that then that also I better worship God in the way that he has commanded. I don't get to say, well, I'm going to do this thing because it seems like a fun way to worship. I need to be like, what has God said? What does he want in worship? And so that was the first sermon. So then uh, last month, we also talked about corporate worship. And we addressed like, what does it mean when we come together and worship God as a body of believers? And we talked about the things that God has commanded us to do, how we're to come together, how we're to worship in spirit and truth, but of course, worshiping in the word and prayer and all these other things. Everybody's with me? Yes. All right, so today we're going to talk about what it means to worship God individually. In my personal resources, my work, my, my resources, my time, and we're going to talk about what that means. Um, and of course, as I say that, I always have to say, I avoid, I'm, as a pastor, I would say, to a harmful degree, I have avoided teaching on giving. Because most of us, when we think of pastors that teach on giving, we teach of like, we think of like a Creflo Dollar or a Joel Osteen, or we think of these guys that ask people to give so that they can line their own pockets or they teach a false view of giving. Many of us have heard this. They'll say, well, you need to sow your seed of giving so that God blesses you in this way. And notice that there is what is really a pagan approach to giving that says, if you sacrifice this, God's going to give you something back. I'll just tell you, brothers and sisters, that's paganism. It's sinful. It's wrong. It's usually driven by selfish pastors who are trying to make something of themselves. And it's just wrong. I mean, I just... And so I will tell you, I've been afraid to teach on giving because if you teach biblically on giving, there's going to be a couple of principles that are true that a couple of those 
crazy false teachers sometimes use. And so us faithful pastors, I hope I count among them, we avoid teaching about giving because we don't want to be one of those guys. And I'll just confess, that's happened. I see it also with guys that don't want to seem too weird when it comes to Holy Spirit things, and so they don't teach on the Holy Spirit. And I've been guilty of that too, by the way. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm just from the outset, say I'm coming to the table here saying, anytime I'm talking about finances, or even talking about my work and my time, anytime we're doing that, it's a thing that gets mistreated by pastors many times. And unfortunately, we then let the false teachers control the narrative on what the truth is. And I, so I'm just going to tell you guys, I'm not going to let that happen. So today, I am humbling myself before the Lord and teaching on a topic that is uncomfortable to me. But I think it's important, and I think it's going to answer a few questions. It's going to be joyful. So you guys with me? So we're primarily going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn there, no problem. But I'm going to, as you all know, I'm prone to give introductions. So we're not going to get to that for just a little bit. Um, so... First of all, so we talked about worshiping in spirit and in truth. We also have used this phrase called Coram Deo. It's Latin, meaning before the face of God. It comes from Psalm 56:13 that says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. The Latin language has this language of walk before the face of God, which is where this Coram Deo comes from. The idea is I should be living my life in such a way that I'm acknowledging that God sees everything I'm doing. That if I'm, if I'm honoring him, then, then everything I do has the potential to bring glory to God. Whether it is picking up a piece of trash, whether it is teaching my children, whether it is work, whether it's something that nobody else sees, I can do it to the glory of God. And God is watching and he's receiving glory in it. So praise God for that. So that is all the more important as we talk about the topic we're going to talk about this week. So we've already acknowledged um, in past sermons that there's a lot of different ways we worship. We can worship God in our work, in our giving, as we sing, when we evangelize, when we take part in the ordinances of communion and baptism, when we pray together, when we study. The idea is that, yeah, there's this potential for everything I do to bring glory to God. And so, as we lean in a little bit more and we look at Romans 12, chapter, or Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, what do we normally think of when we think of sacrifices? We think of animals getting slain, right? We think of, you know, we think of blood sacrifices. So it is an interesting thing that Paul uses the language of sacrifice to say, I need you, I, God wants you to be a living sacrifice in which you present the service of your body to the glory of God. And then if you look at Romans 12 as a whole, and it's not our primary text, so we're not going to do all the exegesis of Romans 12, but then the language is, here's all the ways that you serve and care for one another in the body of Christ. Here's how you minister to one another. And so as I'm showing hospitality, if I have somebody over for dinner, I'm, I'm bringing glory to God, and I'm serving with, I'm, I'm, my body is a living sacrifice in that sense, right? If I'm, if I'm working to God's glory, the idea that this says then that this is my true and proper worship, that in the daily function of my life, not to mention as we gather to the saints and we, we, show, we minister to one another through you know, hospitality and encouragement and whatever else, that day-to-day, moment-by-moment, 
with my whole self, I'm serving God and bringing glory. So it is classic, and it's hard to avoid. When we talk about this kind of thing, we talk about worshiping God with yourself, we typically divide it into three categories of time and work. Some people will say the classic pastoral thing to like alliterate would be to say time, talent, and treasure. But I try to avoid being one of those pastors that does that very much. So we're going to say like time, work, and resources just to mess it up. Um, that's just what we're doing there. So um, when we talk about worshiping God with time, I'm going to draw attention first to James 3, 13 through 15. It says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go up to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, do you even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Notice that right from the outgoing, when we start talking about time in Scripture, the language is you don't really know because you are not sovereign over your own time. God is. And so even as I make plans, and it doesn't say don't make plans. It doesn't say don't plan how you're going to run business in what city or whatever. It doesn't say that that's wrong. It's saying that, like, acknowledge that God is the one who's sovereign over that, not you. And notice we see this theme carry through. Proverbs 27.1 says, don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring. Uh, Ephesians 5.15-17 says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Psalm 90, 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Romans 13, 11 says, And do this, understanding the present time. time has, uh, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. And notice this theme that carries through is that God is the one that is sovereign over time. My acknowledgement that I am not in control of my time brings wisdom. And then third, I should be wise in the stewardship of my time, especially as it relates to outsiders. Pretty simple, and I'll just say it's going to be faster to move through time and work because there's not a lot of debate, right? It's pretty clear from Scripture, done. I should be very cautious with how my, I use my time. I should acknowledge that God is the one in charge of it, and I should simply seek to obey Him. And the theme, as you'll see, is that our time belongs to God, and so we're to use it wisely as a steward. I'm just going to tell you that theme is going to keep coming up for all of these topics. Everybody with me? Following along? Awesome. All right, so let's talk about work. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but in our culture these days, there is a mentality that work is something wrong. You guys experience this? Where people talk about, if you've ever read the work, uh, the book Four Hour Work Week, right? And the whole principle of the book is, work's terrible, I hate work, let's work as little as possible. And I will say, there are principles in that, it's not a Christian book at all, there are principles of efficiency that are all right in there. We like being efficient, that's good. But this overarching theme that like, ooh, Work is bad. Like that's, I'm just going to tell you, that's not what Scripture teaches. So Colossians 3, 23 through 24 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance for your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
Notice this language is, while you might have an employer, maybe you work for yourself, that's all right, um, but no matter what you're doing, the work is to be done heartily with the understanding that it is bringing God glory and that the focus of this is that God is the ultimate master that you are working for. And yeah, you want to you wanna do well for your boss, you want to do well to provide for your family, but that the whole thing that's happening here is that God is getting glory and he's the one that rewards you accordingly. Similarly, Ephesians 4.8 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice that built into repentance from sin is that no longer does the thief steal, but instead begins working with his hands. See, very similar when... uh, when uh, John the Baptist was preparing the way for Christ and he's proclaiming the good news, one of the things he says is, quit stealing. Do the work you're supposed to do. The language is that work is built into how we are to live as believers, and that work is not a bad thing. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Uh, Paul doesn't mess around. He's, he's like, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. You work to pay for your own resources, and if you don't work... You don't eat. That's just how it works. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13. And I always have to give caveat when we're talking about Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is is dealing with a lot of things, and it's it's got kind of a ne- it's intentionally got a, a a negative view. There's a there's a whole sarcasm at play in a lot of Ecclesiastes. But pointing out this in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them that would be uh, for these other people he's talking about than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. But the language here is that even the work itself can be joyful, and taking, uh, enjoying the fruits of that labor is a good thing. Now, Ecclesiastes is a little bit complicated, and I recognize there's some exegetical issues when you're dealing with Ecclesiastes, but this principle is built in. That God has not given us work as a punishment. He has given it as a gift to provide for ourselves and our families and to bring him glory. Thus we see in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says that, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I don't think we have a hard time looking at the principles for our time and the principles for our work and acknowledging that it's all about stewardship to God. Uh, So our work ultimately is a means of provision for glorifying God, and we should delight in it and rest from it to his glory. Notice, I didn't, I, there's limited time, so I can't go into great detail. But notice that in the Old Testament, God builds in the Sabbath day rest to remind everyone that he is in charge of the work and we are commanded to take a day of rest. And so when I am working, I bring God glory. And when I obey him in resting, I bring him glory. And the whole point is that, and I, gotta, I don't want to stretch this too much, But it's like that day of rest is almost in itself like a tithe where we're saying, God, we're recognizing that you're in charge and that I'm resting in you. And so we're going to get into this when we talk about tithe of finances in a second. But this language, notice the theme. God is the one who owns all of it. He's the one who owns you. He owns your time. He owns your work. He owns your finances. And we are to give of it to his glory as we enjoy the whole process built into this. All right, so... This brings us to giving. As you can imagine, this is going to take a little bit longer to get through. Um, 
I'm going to set the tone by talking about Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The principle is that whatever I delight in, wherever my treasure is, that's ultimately, that's ultimately where my home is. It's where my heart lies. And so Jesus is making the comment, if it's not that it's wrong to build up resources, it's that I better make sure that my primary focus is on the heavenly reward that I am building up. And if my heavenly reward is what I'm focusing on for God's glory, well then everything else falls into place. And so let's keep that in mind. Everybody with me? We good? All right. So I'm going to very briefly go over a few principles of giving before we get to like the main text. And then I promise you guys know how it is. I do a lot of introduction and then the sermon itself goes really fast. So like a couple of people, they're, they're new here and they're like, oh no, he's only doing his introduction. Yeah, but trust me, the introduction makes the sermon go super fast. Um, so a couple of principles. One was we're commanded to give joyfully and by choice. thought that was interesting. 2 Corinthians 9.7. Uh, similarly, in 2 Corinthians 8.3, there's language of giving in accordance with ability and more. And I, I wouldn't say that that's meaning that like, oh, you need to give beyond what you're able. I think the idea is as I am giving, the Lord seems to provide. And I end up like, I don't know how I did that, but the Lord managed to make something more out of that. 2 Corinthians 9.6 says we're to give generously. And 1 Corinthians 16.12 talks about setting aside something on the Lord's Day, on the first day of every week, which gives this indication of like a regular giving, that it's like a, a regular process. All right? So several things here. We already talked about cheerful. Um, 1 Chronicles 29.14 talks about resources being something that's given by God. And so as we're tithing or giving or whatever, he's the one getting glory for it. Uh, Proverbs 11 talks about how God enriches us as we, as we give, but he's enriching us in order to bless with our resources. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8.12 says uh, we're supposed to be ready and able. Luke 6.38 talks about giving and it will be given to you. And I always got to say this because you know this is one of those things that the prosperity gospel guys say. Like, well, if you give, I mean, that's the classic. Have you ever seen the guys? They would actually say, like, mail in this amount of money and then God's going to bless you with 10 times that or whatever. They make these crazy promises. And then when you got that money, if you got it, which you normally didn't, then they would be like, oh, now give that, right? And so then, then they, it was just keep, kept heaping up. And it was like, this is crazy. Um, there is a biblical principle that as we give in accordance with God's command, he does give back, actually, in Luke, but in a certain context. Luke 6, 38 says, Given it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. But I just want to point out, the language that we see everywhere else is that we're increasing in blessing as we're giving, which seems to allow us to do more for the sake of God's kingdom. The language is not like, do this little bit so you can get everything you want. The idea is, the goal of this is God's glory. And whatever amount I do with my resources for God's glory seems to be increased as he provides for me, and that's clear in it, he provides all that I need, but then it seems like the whole thing is that like, wow, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm doing more for his kingdom, and there's a blessing for him and for his glory that's coming out of that. 
We can read on Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 talks about honoring God with wealth. Malachi 3.10 talks about God providing as we give. Uh, Matthew 19.21 refers to how riches can be a snare. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.3 talks about we better have love in our giving. Um, And we already talked about Matthew 19 and where our treasure is, our heart is. So let's just get to the main text here. 1 Corinthians, um, I believe we're in chapter 9. I might have said 6 earlier. We're going to start in verse 6 of chapter 9. Sorry about that. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and there's an issue going on with Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is broke. A little side note, you might note that in Acts, one of the things the church in Jerusalem was doing was selling all of their possessions and bringing it all together, and it was a really happy time because they're giving everything away. I just like to acknowledge, I don't think God ever told them to do that, and then the church in Jerusalem was notoriously poor after that. And so um, I have heard that there are Marxists who will try to say, like, oh, look, see, in the book of Acts, the Christians all pulled all their resources. Yay, um, you should do that, too. And I'm like, well, first of all, that was a whole different setting because they were doing it in a way that honored God. But second, God never commanded them to do that, and I'm not sure it was the best financial move, right? And so what's happening here is Paul is writing to the church at Corinth saying, like, your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are starving, Um, So let's help him out. And so he's arranging for them to give a gift that is going to get to Jerusalem to care for the body of Christ there. Is it six? No. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also... Oh, hold on. That's chapter six. Look at your slide. That's six. I'm not sure how I messed up my slides so bad. Um... Yeah, go to that nine. I'm really sorry that I messed this up this bad. Um, oh, skip, skip on down. I'm, I've totally messed up my slides. Forgive me, you all. I'm sorry. First um, Corinthians, it should be verse nine. This is where they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Now the righteousness endures forever. Second Corinthians 9. Oh, you guys. You don't want to know something fun, too. I did... Here's what's funny. I did more editing on these slides than I've done ever before. And so that's probably... I probably messed that up. You know what? That's... In God and his sovereignty, let me mess this up. So that Adam could feel better about messing up the uh, the optional ending on that song. Um, yeah. Um, cool. All right. Nine, and we should be starting in verse. Skip to that next slide, sister. Um, and what is what is the first thing on there on verse nine, or verse six? Remember this. Remember so. Okay. In that case, go back one slide. I'm sorry. All right, give me just a second. I'm sorry, you guys. You all are so gracious to me. Thank you. All right, so Paul, writing to Corinth, and this is what he says. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. By the way, as we already mentioned, that's the kind of thing that sure sounds like what the prosperity gospel guys say. So we need to clarify this, because if you just use that, 
Well, then you've got people, you know, mailing in money and sowing seed gifts and, you know, Creflo dollars buying a $60 million jet, right? We have to read this in context. This is, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So by the way, this already rules out most of the prosperity gospel teaching, because what do they do? They, they give compulsion, right? They say, oh, you feeling reluctant? You better give more. That's how you're going to sacrifice. Oh, you're not sure, well, what about the, these kids over here that need this? Or what about, oh, they, I'm trusting God for this plane. Are you not going to be a part of God's plan to give to my plane? And then you're going to rob God of the blessing he wants to give me? They, it gets that crazy. It's compulsion. It is sinful. It's wicked. But what he is saying here, Paul is saying, you should give what you've decided in your heart. Now, again, this particular context is in giving to meet the needs of some fellow believers. They're giving through the church. I will acknowledge that this is something somewhat unique, but the principle here is you give in accordance with God, with what God put in your heart, and nobody's allowed to tell you one way or the other on that. Everybody with me? Making it clear? Right? And I'm ad admittedly calling out specifically Creflo Dollar for his manipulation. Right? I could probably list a whole lot more uh, TV preachers who do that. And I will say even sometimes some just local pastors who... They're trying to do the best they can, and they don't know how to make sure that they make their budget other than to do some manipulation, and I would just say it's still wrong. All right, reading on. Uh, it says, verse 8, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, not just financial resources, in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Notice it, it doesn't say... He's going to bless you so that everybody sees how awesome you are. Or he's going to bless you so that you get all that you've ever wanted. You're, there's, there's none of that here. The language is you're going to have everything you need so you can abound in every good work that God has called you to. Right? That's, that's it. There's no prosperity gospel here, brothers and sisters. But there is absolutely enrichment and blessing for the sake of the kingdom and, and for your good. It just doesn't look like Lamborghinis and Jets most of the time. Yes. Key there is need not want. It means I, you will have what you need so that you can be a hospitable brother and sister in Christ and you can have all the joy in the world that you need. Um, reading on. Verse 9. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. That's throwing a branch in all of the prosperity gospel stuff there. That the language is, he will enrich, he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Right? I mean, that's, they never teach on that. Right? It's always like, you're going to have a, you're going to sow your seed and you're going to have this harvest of all these wonderful material blessings. No, the, right, the language here is that God is the one who supplies that sower with the seed. So the seed's his in the first place, right? And now, yes, he has supplied you for that, and you are giving, and you are sowing, but your harvest is one of righteousness in which, what is it that was the goal in the first place? I'm laying up my treasures in heaven, right? I always want to be so careful because it's like, well, yeah, God does still bless you materially. He does. But man, the whole point of this is his glory, 
Reading on, it says, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Notice what he's saying. He's like, we're going to take this gift to the people of Jerusalem that need it, and they're going to thank God. So you're giving him glory. He's getting glory as you give. He's going to provide for you to be able to do more in your your generosity and your hospitality. And then those who are receiving it are going to give glory to God. And notice the result is that God is receiving thanksgiving which is what it's about in the first place. Cool. Verse 12, he expounds on this. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of this service by which you have provided, I'm sorry, have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accomplishes your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity and sharing with them and with everyone else. Notice he's saying, by you doing this, it's going to result in other people praising God. So he's kind of saying, like, you're praising God and you're doing it, and you're, praising, you're helping other people praise God as a result. It says, and in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Man, brothers and sisters, when we start talking about giving, notice that the recurring theme all the time is that God is the one who's supposed to be getting glory. And he makes sure that you are taken care of the entire way through. All right. So we've already acknowledged that trust kind of reveals, you know, our trust is revealed by our treasure. Like wherever our heart is, that's where our treasure is. Um, I'm just going to get real practical. Did anybody have a question? I'm sorry. You were just scratching your head. All right. I was ready. I was ready. Um, I'm going to get super practical and just talk about like, all right, questions that come up related to giving. One of them is where should my giving go? Well, According to 1 Corinthians 9, 11, um, Paul talks about how we, and this is why I messed this up before. It's 1 Corinthians 9, 11 that says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? And Paul is saying, it's not bad for a pastor to get paid. And he's like, wherever you're, you're being ministered to, you should give there and make sure that whoever is ministering to you is cared for. That's simple as that. That's built into there. We, we see then that um, some of the giving goes to provide for ministers and missionaries. Um, we see this plenty of passages, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, Galatians 6, 6, 1 Corinthians 9, 9. The idea is, yes, some of your giving should go to your local church because that's how we keep the ministry going and God receives glory in that. And then there's also this language that the local church helps care for the believers in need, and I would even say beyond believers. We see this in Acts 4, in Acts 6, Deuteronomy 14 talks about this. The idea is the local church is the place where you give so that you can care for others and the, and the ministers are provided for. Simple as that. Um, but I would also say we should pay attention to the fact that God also commissions us to care for our families. Men specifically, 1 Timothy 5.8, men are commanded to provide for their families. And so this is another thing against the, uh, the whole prosperity thing, when they kind of manipulate you into giving more than you can. Well, brothers and sisters, I will say specifically to you brothers, you are required by God to provide for your family. If you are somehow giving sacrificially in a way that keeps you from providing for your family, you are outside the bounds of God's commands. You need to work and provide for your family, and yes, you need to give uh, to the kingdom work. 
But part of that kingdom work is you providing for your family. And I would say built into that is the hospitality that was talked about before. In Hebrews 13, 6, it says, Do not neglect to do good or to show what you have for such sac- and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There is this language of like, you know what? I have people over for dinner now and then. And I care for people who maybe have need or I'm just a blessing to the brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's built into the use of my funds in my own home. Everybody follow me on that? So like, yes, we're talking about giving outside. There's also this idea that like I'm stewarding my own household things so that I can be a blessing with them. Cool? All right, so I'm going to move fast through this next thing. But we got to answer the question of whether or not we're supposed to tithe. Because does this come up for most of you? We're like, okay, I'm supposed to give. Bible talks about tithing. Do I need to give 10%? You guys know about this? No, you never heard of tithing. No, some of you are shaking your hands, all right? So I will just acknowledge that in a lot of churches, especially, um, especially honestly, churches, non-denominational Baptist churches, one of the things that you'll hear said is that, ah, tithing is for the Old Testament. New Testament doesn't mention tithing. So it's really just kind of loose and, and we're supposed to give. So I'm just going to address a couple of things because that's a, that's a pretty important question. Because some people will say, you've got to give 10%. If you don't give 10%, you're in sin. And there's another group of people that are like, doesn't matter, man. You just got to give as you feel like it, right? We need to address this because we, we know that we're commanded to give. We better, we better buckle down and understand what this looks like. So tithe literally means tenth. And what we see in Leviticus 27 is God establishes the tithe, the 10% of those resources, as a way to acknowledge that God is the one who owns it anyway. So the tenth was being able to say like, God, we recognize that this is yours and you have commanded 10%. And it was him saying, that's mine anyway, but I want you to give back 10% to me for the sake of you acknowledging this. Cool? So that was 10th, right? Offering seems to be used in other places in scripture, even in Deuteronomy, but it's kind of a free, open-ended, like you have a tithe that's 10%, you have an offering that's just kind of what you want to give, right? Understanding that, we're defining the terms. I need to acknowledge something, and I hope it doesn't sound too much like I'm getting too much onto a soapbox. But I just want to acknowledge in 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, i got to stop saying 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Holy cow. In 1 Samuel 8, maybe chapter 9, you remember when, <laughs> Christie knows where I'm going, when the people of Israel wanted a king like other kingdoms. And what, what God said to Samuel is you tell them that he's going to conscript your children for war, he's going to put you to work in ways you don't want to be working, and he's going to tax you at 10%. And the reason why that was seen as so egregious is that he was saying the king is going to act like he's God and say he gets 10%. I just want to acknowledge that there is an issue that I would say is what I would call the idolatry of the state. And it is where people begin thinking, aha, God, the, the state is the one that's really in charge. right? And so, and by the way, our state takes a whole lot more than 10%. And I just want to acknowledge, I, this is, I'm not joking around. Brothers and sisters, the idea was that that king was in grave sin and it was a punishment on the people when he taxed them at 10%. Because he was saying, I get to take as much as God. And that's wicked. And I'm just going to acknowledge our tax code is wicked. Simple as that. From a biblical perspective, it's sinful. What you will also notice is that the state comes in and starts trying to do things that the church is supposed to do with God's money. And I just want to point out, there is an idolatry that's built up in that, and it's just wrong, brothers and sisters. I am not telling you to evade taxes. I'm just acknowledging 
that there is an idolatry that is built into our current structure, and it is wrong. More on that in a second. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is, uh, and I'm going to move fast through this next thing, is there was actually three different types of tithes used in Scripture. You had the sacred tithe, and that was the what was essentially going to the Levites, that was essentially running the church, right? Standard 10%. You had a tithe of feast, and this was every two years, a 10% was set apart that was essentially your vacation fund so that you could go to the temple and you would have money to travel with your family and you could enjoy having feasts and it was, it was kind of a God-glorifying vacation that was built into worship. The third thing was a tithe for the poor and it seemed to be happening only every 10, not every 10 years, every three years and it was how they made sure, God even says in Deuteronomy 14, if you do this, there will be no poor among you. There was no welfare system built in what it was is every three years, the money is set aside, a tithe is set aside that then you use to make sure that anyone who meets the criteria of poverty, someone who really could not work, that you help them out and there was a whole system to make sure that they were not poor. It was not built like our welfare system is today. It was a very biblical system to say, hey, we recognize that there are people that are unable to do things. We're going to make sure they're taken care of. We see that reflected in the New Testament to some degree with what the the church was doing in Acts 6 to care for the poor. just want to point that out. What God has designed is a system in which his people care for their needs, care for the church, and care for those who are not able to provide for themselves. And that is what God has designed, and I would say that what our state does is not good. Anyway, more on that in a second. A little side note, some of what the state does is because we let them, because we weren't doing it like we should have, and it requires some repentance on our part. More on that in a second. So this whole question of whether or not we should tithe, we just point out that um, the tithe was built into the Old Testament before there was a law. So normally they'll say, oh, it's part of the Old Testament law, don't worry about it. And maybe, but, you know, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek way before there was an Old Testament law written. And so I just want to point out, like, there's a whole lot of, I've, I sent you all the notes, there's a lot of things you could kind of go either way on it. But I just want to say, this principle of tithing seems to carry through. Right? Like, I recognize there's nothing in the New Testament that says you're supposed to give 10%. But what we see is this principle that went all the way through, predating the Old Testament law, all the way up through the Old Testament, and then we see fulfilled in the New. And I would say, you don't need to be a legalist on 10%. But it sure does seem to be a principle. So the conclusion is that tithing is a principle which predates the law and is taught by Jesus in the New Testament. As the Old Testament points to the New Testament, so the tithe points forward to abundant giving. We should see tithing as an ongoing principle to be joyfully applied in trust rather than a laborious drudgery to be dutifully adhered to. Our resources belong to God and to his church and, and, and giving to his church and providing for one another provides a glory to him. Um, pretty simple. So, as you can understand, it's super exciting to talk about giving. I mean, it's just like my favorite, favorite thing. So let me just acknowledge as we're finishing up here, um, what we do with our giving as a church is we use those resources, one, to provide for me. Um, I, I take a housing allowance. Um, and then to provide for missions. And then we also, by God's grace, have a storehouse to meet needs. So when someone is in the church has need, or when you have a connection to someone, you're like, this person has a need. By God's grace, we have some resources to meet that. Uh, we roughly have... Um, for a while, we were running, we're, our operational budget was about 50% of what was coming in. So for a lot of times, not always like this, we're able to give away 
50% of what comes in. So we support our missionaries in El Salvador. We support missionaries in other parts of the world. God is good in that. And then we are ready to meet needs as we need to. So I just want to keep that in mind and feel free to, you can talk to Justin who can give you much more detail on the budget. Um, here's what I will invite you to do. When we give, most of us give online because let's just say it's, it's easier. But I know for some of us, the act of worship and coming on Sunday and dropping it in an offering bucket just means something. And so got a basket right here. If you prefer to give in person, praise God, you can do that. And then uh, Justin and or Dan uh, will take care of that. Um, but we're going to go into the gospel from here. Any questions as we finish this up? As I gave what is a uh, lot of lecture on all of this? Cool. Message. Right. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Well, let me pray. And then um, who is on for? Greg, you are on for the gospel. All right. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you that you own the cattle in a thousand hills. Thank you that, by God's grace, our church is able to function on such a simple uh, amount, Lord, that I don't have to sit around wondering if we're going to make budget. Lord, we've, we're blessed to have plenty. Um, and so, Lord, we're not in a position where we have to manipulate people into give, not that we should do that anyway. Um, but, Lord, we're in a position to say, you own everything, and you have commanded us to give to your glory. And so, Lord, may we give, as Paul talked about, exactly what you put in our hearts to give. And so we ask that you would receive glory in all this. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.